Now, if you ask me, what is sales? I would say uh, sales is about connecting the dots between problems. Some problems are known, some are unknown, and solutions. Some solutions are known, some are unknown. How is it going, ladies and gentlemen? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you back to The Way of the Wolf. Our guest today is a gentleman named Mike Simmons. He focuses on leadership, culture, revenue, and execution. Couldn't think of a better person to come on and start chopping it up with me on these topics. Mike, welcome to The Way of the Wolf. Sean, it is awesome to see you. Thanks for having me on. All right. We started off uh, probably about two weeks ago, having a really good conversation, sort of delving into what it looks like to start building a customer base, lead generation, converting leads to customers and, and all of that stuff. And as the conversation was unfolding, I thought, you know what, we just need to get on the show and start recording all of this content so that we've got some some real time knowledge that we can share with everybody on the show. So you up for it? Uh, always. Okay, so tell me a little bit about your background, just high level in terms of how you found yourself focusing on helping organizations grow and scale. And, and let's talk a little bit about leadership, sales, rev revenue generation, things like that. Yeah, I've got a pretty unique background. Uh, born originally in New York, then lived in Jersey for a little bit, and then uh, Southern California for high school. So and I share that because of the combination of both East Coast and West Coast kind of growing up perspective. I really think about myself as growing up though in Southern California because those were high school years and uh, you got to hang out at the beach and get out near the water. And that's my place to kind of refresh, reset, relax is getting out there and seeing the ocean. Professionally, UPS guy for seven years, then moved into ed tech and enablement tech uh, at a company called SmartForce. I was there for just about seven years before joining a company called O'Reilly. In that term, I went from operations, loading and loading package cars to help to guiding people who are loading and unloading airplanes to getting airplanes out on time to then moving into what today you'd call customer success. Back then we, it was implementation success. That's what we were doing with our customers and then moved into an account executive role and just kind of worked my way from ops into customer facing, into revenue producing, into revenue leadership type roles over a 20, now four, 25 year uh, career. So it's interesting career progression. And I'm curious about what prompted you to make that transition from revenue generation into revenue leadership? Because a lot of people that I've come across that are focused on sales, I'm going to be honest, the people that I've encountered, they're driven solely by the dollars. And in my experience, when you start stepping more into the revenue generation or leadership realm, you don't have maybe quite as much opportunity to get the big dollars, but you're focusing on building the people on your team. Is that fair in your experience? And what prompted you to kind of go that path? I, I think it's fair. I think there are a lot of misconceptions around what leadership is. There are a lot of people who look at leadership as a role or as a title or as an opportunity to maybe not work as much as you have to do on a daily basis. Again, this, this is like early career people who are starting to think about what leadership is rather than later career people who kind of know what leadership is and then find their way out of leadership because it just isn't the right fit for them. The, the draw for me, when I first moved into an ed tech enablement technology, that smart force company, um, one of the things I was missing was the leadership aspect of what I did. I was a operations manager at UPS. I had a team of people I was working across uh, multiple time periods or multiple shifts, which was really hard on body and hard on the relationship. When I moved into the ed tech space, I realized there was something missing and it was that whole working directly with people to help them become a better version of themselves. And I wouldn't have said it that same way back then as I would say it today, but I knew it was missing. So I started, I got into personal training and I started training people help again, helping them become a better version of themselves. And I 
was always interested in moving back into some type of leadership track. I just didn't know what it was going to be or where the opportunity was going to be. And where that first opportunity happened was when I was at O'Reilly with Safari Books Online. And I had a a chance to lead our account management team for a period and then our channel team and then started just adding on components up until uh, the point where I left that role. Uh, I was the vice president of our America's uh, team. Okay. All right. So what has been your experience in working with sales professionals? So as you and I discussed, we started our company really going all in last year. And a lot of the business development, sales, lead generation is kind of falling to me right now, which is fine. I mean, this is an area that I have not historically had to do anything with. And like you and I discussed, my my dad, brother, definitely into car salesmen. I've had a lot of exposure to car, used car salesmen and just car salesmen in general. And one of the things that I've been cognizant of is I never want to come across as that slimy salesman. So how do you, as a business leader, bring people into your organization and avoid that stigma? Like, are there things that you can look out for whenever you start identifying a salesperson to come onto your team? There are. And actually, I'm going to take us back just about 15 minutes ago when you said, hey, promote what you're doing, but don't be salesy. Yeah. It triggers <laughs> me whenever anybody says that. And, yeah. and, and the reason why it triggers me is because uh, there's this negative connotation associated with the word sales. So what is sales to you, Sean? Well, I think it's basically identifying leads and converting them into customers that generate revenue. Okay. Yeah. And functionally inside organizations, those are the kind of roles that people will have and the type of people that you tend to, the things that you think about happens from a sales organization perspective and the measurables that you use to hold people accountable to doing their job. Now, if you ask me, what is sales? I would say uh, sales is about connecting the dots between problems. Some problems are known, some are unknown and solutions. Some solutions are known somewhere unknown. Now, typically when I'm speaking in, in front of groups and working with clients who struggle with that perception of sales, I will ask this question and it works better in a group, but I'll, I'll just ask, I'll say, hey, by raise of hands, how many people like to be sold to? It doesn't matter how many people are in the room. It could be 25 people. It could be a couple hundred people. They're, the majority of the group does same kind of thing. They kind of move back and they shake their head no. And they say, this is not, that's not what I want to do. Now there's usually somebody inside the audience who will raise their hand and smile and they're just trying to be funny. And if you get to their core, they don't really like that hard sold to, but they say they do. So we've got this group of people, nobody likes to be sold to. Then I, my follow-up question is, okay, how many people like to buy things? And that's the response that I get. I get this smile, this nod, this kind of leaning in, this laughter, because there are a lot of people in the audience, in the group, who now have made that connection. Wait a second. We don't like to be sold to, but we do like to buy things. Well, why is it that we don't like to be sold to and why is it that we like to buy things? We like to buy things to solve problems, whether they're personal problems. We just want to feel good in the clothes that we're wearing. We want to look good while we're driving a vehicle. We want to have the newest set of irons because they think we think they're going to make us play better golf, or we want to make sure that we buy the best product in a certain area because it reduces risks because nobody got fired for hiring IBM. If you go back, back to a saying from, I think like the eighties and nineties. So we don't like to be sold to, we do like to buy things we do have problems that exist out there. Well, actually, let me ask that question. Do you believe that people have problems? For sure. Okay. So we've got people who have problems and you also believe that there are solutions out there potentially for each of those problems. Correct. So we've, we've got problems and we have solutions that exist out there yet. We have people who go out there constantly trying to push their solution onto people without figuring out whether or not they actually have the problem that you're solving for or they care about the problem, or they care enough about the problem to actually do something about it. Because in the whole scheme of problems that they're prioritizing, they've got other ones that go up at the top. So when we get into this, what is sales perspective, if we start to think about sales as a servant 
driven craft, problem solving, helping people, acting in service of others. Even the most, the person who's most uncomfortable with the sales process or selling or any of those kind of things can become the best salesperson you've ever seen. Okay. All right. So I absolutely love this approach and you're right. It is about shifting mindset and perspective on these things. And as I reflect back the majority of my life and career, I was in oil and gas. I had to deal with the vendors of all different sorts and all different functional domains. And I can vividly recall all of them that were those slimy salespeople that sure. would come in and just try to sell everything. I'm thinking of one in particular, a vendor that we were working with. We had an account manager that was phenomenal. She was just absolutely incredible. She shifted over to another account and due to the nature of her role changing, they brought in a new guy and he came in, met with myself and our team for the very first time. And all he did was try to sell us all sorts of stuff without having a conversation around what our needs are. Now, I ended up contacting one of the leadership group at the that company and said, look, this guy, do not ever send him back. He had no desire to actually learn anything about our business, what our problems were. He was just trying to sell something. I wasn't able to get our original account manager, but they did put somebody else in that came in had a conversation, started learning about our environment, and then would propose solutions that actually made sense to solve our problems. Now, I think that part of the reason there is this stigma is because a lot of people who are very personable, but also driven solely by money, find themselves in sales roles. And you mentioned something earlier about holding salespeople accountable based on their metrics. And I've had a lot of experience and exposure to organizations that have salespeople and actually worked for us. It would blow my mind how there would be zero accountability. They would have a salesperson making ridiculous amounts of money. They wouldn't make a single sale like year after year after year. They're like, oh, but they've got a good relationship with this customer. Well, the business unit leader be, okay, well, how good is a relationship if they haven't sold anything? So, and now that's just my experience, but since you work with so many organizations and sales leaders and sales teams, how do you get these business unit leaders to actually hold their salespeople accountable and bring in people that can generate revenue versus, oh, well, they've got a great demeanor and they're friends with this potential customer. Yeah, it's by simplifying. And so simplify, let's, uh, how do we create complexity? We add things to it uh, and a... Um, one of those uh, paper airplane is actually pretty simple. It's got one piece. It's a piece of paper. We fold it into a couple of places and send it down, down its way. You get one of those wooden like balsa wood airplanes. You add a couple of other pieces. It becomes a little bit more complex. Things could break. You add one with the little propeller. It becomes more complex. So we create complexity by adding things. How do we simplify? We start removing. When we can remove some of these activity metrics, we can get better at holding people accountable to the things that are most important. And my two most important metrics are pipeline created. What are we building in? What new opportunities are we creating, adding into the pipeline? Not any of the other stuff before that, just pure what, brass tacks, pipeline created. What are we, how much money-wise, how many deal-wise, and then pipeline developed. How are those deals moving through the stages of the sales process that help us get better at forecasting? Not the buyer decision-making process or not the way that the rep approaches their work, but the actual sales process that we have in place, the stages that we use for forecasting that indicate probability of sale increasing or decreasing. Ultimately, when pipeline is developed completely, it turns into closed one business or closed loss business. And I'm not, I'd love to see more closed one business, but I'm also okay with closed loss business because closed loss business tells us something about the pipeline that was created and maybe some mistakes around why, what, what led to that pipeline being created, us working with the wrong folks. So just two metrics. You're probably out there listening to this and you're saying, well, we keep track of activities and number of calls and number of emails, number of proposals, all of these other numbers, all these metrics, these number of demos that we do with folks. 
simplify pipeline created pipeline developed pipeline created pipeline developed and then work backward from each of those if we're struggling with the development piece then we can train and coach the team to get better at those pieces we can kind of figure out why if we're struggling on the creation piece then we can start to look at what kind of work is being done that is getting in the way of that pipeline being created. You could be the most amazing relationship builder in the world, but if you're not creating pipeline, you're probably in the wrong role. Yeah, so that's such a simple, simple way to identify metrics that are quantifiable and you can hold these people accountable to it. So it's actually, so that's one component of it, now let's delve into the leadership side of it. You sure. have a business unit president or an entrepreneur. They see the metrics. They see the data. It is quantifiable. This person is not generating leads. They're not generating revenue, but they're still not holding the salespeople accountable. And then let's layer in some more complexity. This salesperson has a massive ego and they are toxic to the culture of the organization, but they allow them to stay. I have my thoughts on this, but definitely welcome yours. It's crap leadership. I mean, that falls right back on the leader who who's allowing it to happen. Like if I if I allow my kids to do certain things, now that behavior becomes uh, acceptable. Uh, it's getting reinforced. There's no consequences for doing things that are inappropriate associated with the business or with the family or with self. If I we're recording this early in 2024. I shifted to carnivore as a diet place to remove all, to really simplify, like remove all of the other types of food that I might be putting into my body, not worrying about time, not anything like that, just, just meat. Well, I need to hold myself accountable to doing that thing. If I allow myself to have something else, then that's a poor leadership from the perspective of self. People will do the things that you allow them to do. Some people will. Now, some people who are really good at leading self will avoid those traps and they'll work, direct, they'll work directly to accomplishing a, a given goal and objective. And I don't think that anybody wakes up in the morning and says, how can I waste as much time today as possible? Or how can I be the biggest jerk inside the organization? I don't think people do that. I think there are some people who might, but broadly speaking, I don't think people do that. I think people want to make an impact, um, be valued inside an organization, deliver value, help people do better and be better. And that's a, that's a human thing. So in the instance that you gave, that you shared, and which I see over and over again, and it's easy to justify it. That's a, that's a, that's a crap leadership from my perspective. And what the person who's making that decision needs to do is first start with evaluating their perspective on leading self. Are they leading themselves well? Are they holding themselves accountable to these things? Are they simplifying in the way that they engage with the team? If not, start first with self, then we can start leading others. You know, it makes me think the phrase culture is shaped by the worst behavior tolerated by leadership. And I've seen this time and time again with, with our clients and other organizations that I've yep. worked for, and it's very unfortunate and challenging. And the argument that usually gets told when it's focused on someone in the sales organization is, well, they have this relationship with customer X. If we let them go, we risk potentially losing that customer. And my mindset goes to, if you have somebody that has a relationship and maybe they are generating a lot of revenue, but they are a drag on the organization. They are just this toxic black hole of, of negativity. When you get them out of the organization and bring in somebody else to support that customer, the productivity for everybody else in the organization starts to rise because they are no longer focused on bitching and complaining about that toxic individual. Their output actually increases so that they can, because they can focus on the actual mission as opposed to complaining about that toxic person. Yeah, I, it, it's it's mind numbing to me how people allow it to continue to happen, but people allow it to continue to happen because they're held hostage by this highly personable, big smile, Scott, 
as the kids say, Riz, like just out there working things and you don't want to lose, you don't want to lose, you don't want to lose that person. But the reality is what would you gain by eliminating that cancer or that negative draw that exists inside the organization? And here's the other question to ask yourself. If you happen to be in one of those situations where you're thinking about people that are inside your organization, who, if you lost them, you might lose that deal. And I'd question whether or not you have the deal to begin with. Are they working with you because of that person? Or are they working with you because of the type of business, the type of solution that you deliver into the market? Now, if you're in a highly competitive market and you're selling uh, paper clips, yeah, you can get, it's pretty easy to switch from paperclip to paperclip. But if you're in, if you're actually delivering enterprise value, significant value to an organization and that organization is dependent on the solution that you're providing and it and there are things that you do that differentiate yourself then you might want to revisit your perspective on why those customers work with you and how those customers work with you and what value they perceive from working with you and you might feel or see that hey we're not as dependent, we might see some bumps in the road, but we're not as dependent as we think we are to this single person. The other question I would ask is what happens if that person gets hit by a bus tomorrow? So that's exactly where I was going to be going with this is that also is once again, a failure of leadership because you're not developing that bench beneath them or around them. And as much as I would love to say, well, this person is extremely important to the organization. They might be However, if they get hit by a bus, if they get a better job opportunity, and then they leave all of a sudden, as leaders, we need to have that bench being built up. And maybe somebody's not quite ready to step in right at that moment. But if there is an instant departure, you need to have somebody queued up or somebody in your mind that you're thinking about. They can step into this role. They can grow. I can coach them. We can work with them and and get them there as opposed to having somebody who is the nexus of an organization. And if they get dropped out or they get pulled out, all of a sudden everything falls apart. And, and I do have a quick story to share with this. Years ago, we had a software company that we worked with and one of their project managers, integrators, she was just phenomenal, just absolutely incredible at what she did. We ended up hiring her at our organization the CEO of the software company was not pleased with me. He didn't talk to me for a pretty good while afterwards. A year goes by. I finally get to go have lunch with him and catch up. He admitted that because she had been such an integral part of her, of their organization for so long, when she departed, he had to completely restructure how work operated and occurred in their business and he had to end up hiring three different people to fill the roles that she was filling and it was very painful for him in the beginning but he learned a valuable lesson in that you cannot hinge a business on one person that you have to structure it in a way so that it is resilient in the event of a departure yes yeah and 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 the way you do these things are looking at people process systems, right? As you kind of work through each of those and you say here, all right, is there an opportunity for us to improve systems so that we can plug other people in to them? We have lower level of dependency on um, the O-ring issue inside an organization. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the O-ring, when uh, Challenger exploded, it was an O-ring problem, a simple thing. Like it was small pieces of rubber. And I, that's about as technical as I can get, but people knew about the O-ring problem, but nobody talked about the O-ring problem or people didn't want to hear about the O-ring problem. And then people took on additional risk because they didn't want to push out a launch where a school teacher was going to go out on a launch and they didn't want to lose. And there's, there's some really cool documentaries around all the background here, but look at the challenges inside your organization and ask yourself, where are our O-ring problems? And if we can answer those O-ring problems, then we actually can start to put things in place to help solving for those problems rather than pushing them down, kicking the can down the road. Um, yeah. 
powerful. So player. yeah, that O-ring issue. I had the opportunity to meet a one of the astronauts on the shuttle program during that time. Is uh, Mike Mullane. He actually wrote a book called Writing Rockets. And one of the things that he spoke about, and actually I think he has speeches and he goes and does this at conferences and stuff, it's the normalization of deviance. And to your point, they knew about the deterioration of the O-rings. Let's just say you've got 100% continuity of the O-ring. As the rockets were going up, it would chip away and erode. And by the time the rocket boosters would come down, they could see, all right, well, it ate away 20%. It ate away 25%. It ate away 30%. And people just started, okay, well, it still worked. And there was still some, some erosion. There was risk there. And for those of you that are aware, it was uh, abnormally cold the day the Challenger disaster occurred. There were a lot of people that were wanting to delay the launch, but for media reasons and all the publicity and all that stuff, they opted not to. Very horrible, horrible disaster. But that normalization of deviance, we know this is an issue. Well, we'll let it slide. Well, we'll let it slide. Well, we'll let it slide. Boom. All of a sudden, horrible disaster. And that is something you have to be cognizant of in your organization. And while the stakes probably, hopefully, aren't as high as something like that, that is something that people need to be aware of in their organization. And I think that as revenue generation becomes increasingly important in organizations. And I see this a lot with publicly traded businesses. They focus on the next quarter financial statements and that's it. Shareholder value, public perception, and they start to stray away from the employees and the customers to focus on this over here. Very unfortunate when that occurs because logic would dictate if you just focused on customers and employees, the revenue would take care of itself. But there's so many competing priorities, competing stakeholders, literally in that instance, that there's just so much to juggle and it becomes increasingly difficult as the organization grows and becomes increasingly complex. It is hard and complex. So if we understand that these things are hard and we understand and agree that they are complex, how do we reduce complexity? So, well, we, we reduce, we start to isolate for variables and we reduce um, things. We, re we look at opportunities to kind of shrink into a specific area and solve for a specific problem. So by isolating for a given variable, we can go ahead and start applying specific tools to help solve for specific problems. The biggest challenge though, that happens is kind of like the story of the five blind men describing an elephant. We've all got different aspects or different views of what we're looking at relative to the problems that we see inside an organization and the challenges that we're facing. And one of the things that I, I try to highlight in the work that I do is many times that revenue problem is actually a culture problem in disguise. And that, I see you nodding, Sean, the culture problem is our perception of revenue. It's our perception of what the revenue team does. It's a perception of what we do with customers. It's, in a, it's clarity around how we go to market, how we engage with customers, how we gather information, who we bring along in that process. If we do not have a culture inside our organization that values what we're doing with our customers and the way that we make money and how we serve our customers, then we're already starting on a couple of steps behind. So I would start there and then start to get into how do people think about things like problem solving and decision-making, goal setting and execution, communication. Well, so if the revenue challenge is a culture challenge in disguise and culture starts with leadership, what if we actually started helping our leaders, people lead self better from the front line so that they had these skills in the interactions that they have with people inside the organization. And then, and those opportunities when they move into leadership roles and they realize to get back to that thing that we were talking about in the front end, like what is leadership? They realize that leadership is an act of service, not a title, not an ability to go sit in a room and 
direct a bunch of things, manage a bunch of processes, and then go home early. It is it's a state of being. It's an act of service. It is something that helps others, in my mind, be a better version of themselves, helps guide others to be a better version of themselves. That's what true leaders do. Leaders build leaders. Leaders create leaders. And um, uh, James Kerr says that in the book Legacy, which is about the um, New Zealand uh, rugby team. So, yes, everything that you just shared resonated beyond belief with me. There's one thing that I do want to go back to, and that is the reduction of complexity. As organizations grow in scale, it's inevitable they will become increasingly complex. And there's a few different ways to manage it, but one thing that I have seen is you end up having these silos of functional domains so that you can have a depth of expertise within IT, within HR, within safety, within transportation, within operations and supply chain. This is necessary. And I think where the breakdown is, is really around communication and collaboration across those silos. My experience in this, as I started leading more functional domains at my previous job, is if there was a transportation problem, they would go up to the VP of transportation, he would come over to me, then I would have a conversation with people on my team. And so communication was up and across and then back down. Yeah. And as they started rolling these teams and functions under me, one of my focuses was to break down the walls between all of these functional domains. Yes, they still have to exist, but whenever you encourage a transportation manager just to go straight across and talk to an HR manager about a problem or issue, as opposed to going up and over, you increase the speed at which they can solve the problem. Now, yes, you have to have trust across these different teams and strong leaders are able to start building trust and collaboration within all of these teams or across all of these teams. But I think that is a big miss that a lot of businesses struggle with. And if you think about companies that get into 10, 15, 20,000 or more employees, like they become increasingly complex, massive behemoths where it is just nearly impossible to do that. But we have to continue to make best efforts to encourage that collaboration. And as long as the people in transportation and the people in HR know their guardrails, boundaries, what they can and can't do, solve those problems at the lowest level first. Then the things that you can't solve, you start escalating up and up. But if you're an administrator or a manager or even a director, solve every single problem you can within your guardrails before elevating it up. You will learn more, you will impress your senior leadership, and you will open up more doors to be able to grow in the future because you will build a reputation for being the problem solver. Yes. And it's hard to do this stuff, right? Like it is, this is, this is, um, you know, any problem that you're looking at can become more and more complex. You can add more and more layers to it. Um, this is going to sound you know, very math-ish, but if we can go back to, and I forget if it was algebra, I think it was algebra, where you isolate for specific variables and then you identify a, an order, of, you have your order of operations and you solve for specific things in a given order. Well, you can do the same thing inside these organizations and you can do a lot of it with through asking those questions. And when you ask your peer in another group or someone uh, that has a role that's maybe customer facing in that other group, if we're talking about customer challenges, customer challenges on transportation versus customer challenges on the maintenance side of, of something. We cross the, we have cross team collaboration. We communicate across those, those teams. We can start to gain additional perspective and start to think a little bit differently about solving for specific challenges. This all sounds good. When you say it out loud, there are going to be people who are nodding their heads saying, yep, that all makes sense. How do I do it? I believe that there's this shift that's going to happen inside organizations and it's going to take a while for it to happen. It's starting to happen inside smaller organizations. 
I think we're going to start to look at organizations more as this kind of ecosystem that are connected through multiple nodes rather than the stovepipe communication thing that Sean had described, which is current state. Like we, we work up the chain of command and then over and then back down. And then it takes a while for things to kind of move along. Well, then people will talk about matrix organizations where people can go side to side. Well, when you look at an ecosystem and you explode this view, kind of like a molecule, you could start to see different thing, different connection points that happen. Um, think of the transportation system when you look at a map. Um, you know, I think there's an opportunity for us to start to think a little bit differently about how we have things structured inside our organizations and how people communicate across teams. Here's the biggest challenge though that I've seen with it in practice. Sometimes people in that team will refer to this as a black marker and other times, and I don't have the right Sharpie right in front of me, but other times people refer to this as a black marker. And imagine that blue one actually was black, but those two things are completely different items. One can do a lot of damage to the board that's behind me. One is intended to work on the board that's behind me. We're talking about two things that allow us to write on paper and I'm holding up a black Expo marker and a, a blue Sharpie, but let's imagine it's a black Sharpie. But we're describing these things as the same thing. And the reality is they're two completely different things, but we're talking past each other. And that gets into that communication challenge that Sean had mentioned before. So how do we operate with a common vocabulary? From a revenue leadership perspective, the thing that's most important to me is that revenue is not a black box inside organizations that people understand across the entire company. How do we make money? Who do we serve? What's our process, both in generating demand, acquiring customers, and then growing and expanding those customers? The more that people have access to that, the more, the greater the appreciation they have for the people who work in those roles, and the better they can keep their eyes open to potential opportunity that's out there. So as a revenue leader, you're listening to this, don't turn your team into this black box where nobody knows what happens inside that group and what happens inside those meetings. Invite others to attend. I would make one of my sales meetings per month open to anybody in the organization. Anybody could come in and sit in on them. It wasn't the one where we're doing some of the pipeline stuff or we're talking about tactics around X, Y, or Z. It, it, like there were a specific meeting once a month, I would open it up to the entire organization. And I would do that so that everybody knew if they ever had a question, they could come. If they ever wanted to observe, they could come. And it's amazing what happens when people start to see what you do in certain roles and what they will potentially come up to you on are ways that you could improve it. So it becomes this area where not only are you providing access and exposure to something, but you're actually gaining additional perspective from others inside the business who might actually help you do your job better. Well, you're creating a culture of transparency. Yes. Now that can be challenging for people that are fearful of losing their jobs. Maybe they are incompetent. So they create this black box intentionally. Oh, this is way too complex. You would never understand it, right? When you start focusing on creating that culture of that transparency, yeah. what you end up doing is having more and more people aware of what is going on, like you were just talking about. And one of the things that I actually enjoy doing whenever I bring large teams together, teams that, I, that I've led, is I will start asking questions two, three, four, five layers down of, hey, what is important to me? What is important to our team and business? That tells me a lot of different things. Now, going back to your example of having the marker versus the Sharpie or the dry erase marker versus the Sharpie, making sure that you are clearly defining everything that's going on in the organization is important, but also making sure that your messaging is permeating through your entire team and the organization. And sometimes, as teams grow and get increasingly complex, leaders have this tendency to firewall themselves off and only have conversations with their direct reports. 
Okay, I get it. When you're in a leadership role, have large teams or an entire business to run, it is challenging for you to make time for every single employee. But the more time you make for employees farther and farther down the chain of command, it gives you exposure. It allows them to better understand who you are, how you operate, let them trust you, and then also allows you as a leader to have a direct one-on-one -on -one conversation with that employee and make sure this is what's important to me. This is what's important to the organization. And it doesn't get watered down through layer and layer and layer of, of leadership. So, you know, the biggest argument that I hear from senior leaders is, well, I don't have time. Well, I don't have time. Well, as a leader, that's why you're there. You're supposed to build the people on your team, make sure that everybody understands your mission and vision. And this is why, in my opinion, whenever I see startups and entrepreneurs as they're building their organizations, there is such an incredibly strong culture and so much buy-in from everybody because that entrepreneur, because that leader is having all of those conversations. They're so closely tied to the company that they are building. They want to make sure that everybody understands what's going on. Inevitably, as scale starts to occur, it starts to get watered down. You have to focus on going as deep into the organization as possible and maintaining those relationships, building and maintaining those relationships. There are a couple of key questions that you can ask. Uh, one thing you can ask when you come across somebody, somebody new that you see getting coffee or water or on a call that joins on a little bit early or wherever this thing happens, right? You can just say, hey, so you know, why do you do the work you do? What gets you excited about the work that you do? And just listen. And then ask another follow-up question based on the information that they share. And you'll get a sense, their perspective of where they fit inside the organization and what how their work impacts what happens inside the organization and what's important to them. Now, maybe they do the work that they do because there's flexibility in time and they've got some kids that are at home and they want to be home when, before the kids get home from school or whatever it is. Awesome. Cool. Let's find out a little bit more information about their kids and how they found this organization and why they stay here and why, what they would like to see happen differently. Because the cool thing about humans is humans have perspective, their perspective. They see the world through their eyes. When you ask questions, demonstrate an interest in them, listen, and then ask follow-up questions and remember what you're talking about, you can start to shift and gain a new perspective, a new brushstroke on the organization around the type of people that you have inside the organization, the type of people that you're attracting. The other cool thing is when they're out there in the world talking to others and they have that experience and they talk to somebody who's looking to do something different inside an organization that cares about their people, now they start referring others into the organization. But if we ask simple questions, like, why do you do the work that you do? You will be amazed by the answers you get. Now, there are also questions that you can ask across the organization that are a little bit different than not about them as an individual, but more about the organization. Like just ask the question, what do you know about our customer base? Why do you think people work with our company? You ask that across your entire organization, heck, just do 10 people across your organization, randomly selected across different roles. You will find out that there's a different perception in your organization from a people perspective about why companies do business with you than what your leadership team thinks is why companies do business with you. And you might find another opportunity to go out there and do more, do better, or start to do less because you're distracted from your overall mission. But ask better questions and listen, you'll get amazing feedback and start to identify where can we isolate for specific variables and start attacking or working on fixing a given challenge that we have inside the business. Rather than trying to do everything at once, we start to get really, really small. And I, I think it's a quote from the Patriot, but aim small, miss small. Like if we start to you know, get in there and be really deliberate, we can start solving for specific items. Ask better questions, solve for specific items. One of the things that I like to share, and this comes up quite a bit whenever I'm sitting on panels or giving speeches and people asking questions is 
okay, what's, what's the biggest thing that I can do to affect change? And I boil it down to two things, listen and act. Whenever you take time to listen, you gain an understanding because of the different perspectives that all of these employees different have and all of these different employees have. And what you will see is the guys out in the field that are servicing the customers, the operators, the engineers, the district managers, they are going to have a very different perspective than the people in the corporate office, the people in the ivory tower. And it is not common for for the people in the ivory tower and out in the field to have the same perspective now that's good and bad and one of the things that i've also seen is when you have people that can easily traverse both of those arenas the corporate office and the field get as many of them as possible into your organization. And if it's a support function leader that happens to just go visit the field a lot and then bring that information back, I do, I'm supremely confident at the previous job that I had, that was one of the reasons that I was able to add so much value is because I spent so much time out in the field. And really I was one of the very, very few from the corporate office that would actually go out in the field, see, lay my eyes on what was actually happening and bring that back to the corporate office. Having people that can bridge that gap and help the people in the field understand why big organization-wide decisions are being made, because a lot of times those appear to be made in a vacuum and the field guys are thinking, what, what is going on here? That doesn't make any sense. And when you're able to shed light on, well, we're doing that because of this, this, and this, they gain a better understanding. And then whenever you bring information back into the corporate office, they gain a better understanding of why ops is making the decisions that they're making. All of this comes down to creating a culture of transparency, effective communication, consistent communication. These are all crucial aspects to being able to build a healthy organization that can grow and scale and have employees that want to work there and want to refer other people to work there. That helps with retention, that helps with attraction of talent, like all of these things feed into one another. Yeah. And, and these are, these are not new concepts. Like I forget who said it first, but managing by walking around or wandering around like the MBWA, like that's a, that's a, that's an old, somebody can look back and find somebody who said that first I, it, for whatever reason, I think it's a Drucker thing, but it probably isn't. I think it, it predates him, but there's this idea of managing by wandering around, get out in the field. When you get out in the field, you see things. If you run into this time challenge that Sean mentioned before, figure out how to make the time. Maybe 10% of your year is spent in the field or 10% of your week is spent in the field or one hour once a month is spent out there. Make the time. And when you ask questions and you observe and you engage, then assess the information that you get out of that observation. And this gets into John Boyd's OODA loop, but you observe, you orient, you decide and act, and then you observe, orient, decide and act. So look at these things as feedback loops. So if I'm out there in the field and I gather information, it's not, Hey, I saw this one thing and now we're going to go solve this one thing and everything's going to be good. And the organization is going to be great. No, I saw this one thing. I test this one thing. I start to get additional feedback. I test again. I get additional feedback, I test again, I iterate, I refine, I deploy. And if we have this culture inside our organization of testing, continuous learning, observation, application, feedback loops that we're all constantly learning and we're gonna make mistakes, but we're also gonna figure some things out as we go through, it's amazing how people will come around and start to believe that this is important to you. And then in those times when you can't get out in the field, the people who are in the field will come up to you and say, hey, so-and-so, this is what I'm running into. This is what I'm seeing. I know it made sense for you to do this. However, this is the actual impact it's having to us in the, in the field. It might've saved us a little bit more money by having each of these parts come in in different shipments because now they're coming direct. But now I'm getting into a situation where I've got a lot of stuff that's sitting in the office because I'm waiting on that one single part that wasn't there for the product to ship at times. So test, iterate, assess, 
stay committed to success. I mean, all of these things, they, I know they sound kind of fluffy and theoretical, but they actually work in practice when you go out and do it. If you go out and do the work, but it all starts with going out there and doing that work. One of the things that I've come to encounter in working with business leaders over the past few years is they have this idea that leadership development, organizational development, it's just this, this fluffy HR nonsense. I pay employees to do a job. They need to do a job. I'm dying to know, how do you address that whenever you start working with business leaders? I, there are some that I can't work with. Like I, I, I won't be able, I won't be able to get, I won't be able to get them to move from point A to point B. They've got this perception that, you know what, if you want to get better at leadership and you need someone to help coach you up on the leadership side, then go out and get a coach on your own. We're not going to invest in it on that side because I didn't have that thing as a resource when I was coming up or whatever their preconceived notions are associated with that. There are some people who just won't get it. They, they, they won't. Control what you can control. Isolate for specific variables. Identify those people and then invest time, energy, and resources in the right places. The way that I like to do it is I ask some questions and I just say, let's say time is a big challenge. And we know that everybody just is doing so much. They keep adding more things to their to-do list and we're just not getting, we're not achieving the results that we want to. Well, then the question I would ask is what would happen if we could? Like, what's the future look like if we could achieve those results? Well, we'd get to point A or point B or point Z, Z or wherever that, wherever that thing is. Okay. Well, so what's getting in the way? Well, we're just, we're doing, we're doing too much. Okay. What if we reduce, like, what could we eliminate? Are there things that we're out there doing right now that we just don't need to have? Do we need to have as many meetings? What would happen if instead of those group meetings that we have where people could read the report when they look at the dashboard, they actually spent that time working with a coach or working with someone to help improve leadership, invested that time in other areas. Well, I don't know that they're going to spend that time. What if they spend that time doing something else? Well, then you've got a culture challenge inside your organization relative to either the people that you've hired inside the business or the expectations that you have for people or the value associated with that continuous learning. But if we ask these questions, we can start to gain additional perspective of the leadership inside the organ inside the organization. Um, some believe that it's the responsibility of others to go out and invest in self. I'm a firm believer that it is the responsibility of others to invest in self. However, I have found a lot of folks out there who don't know where or what to invest in or what to do with those things when they invest. A good indicator of this inside your organization. Let's say you're a leader who likes the book of the month club. You've read Radical Candor or you've read Seven Habits or you've read legacy, or you've read whatever, whatever the book is, you love the book. So you're like, okay, well, I'm going to roll this out across my leadership team. We're all going to read the book and we're going to get better leadership, be better leaders. Some of those leaders are strapped for time. They don't have enough time to get out in the field. When are they going to pick up a book to read it? Some of are they going to pick it up when they're flying? Maybe, but maybe they don't travel. How are we enabling and empowering people to work through this content? And then when we work through the content, are we actually applying all of it? Or are we cherry picking the individual pieces we want to apply? Start with the questions that you're asking yourself as a leader to determine where the opportunities are, and then you can start addressing them. If you don't believe that there's value in continuous learning, value in building leadership, think you can continue to plug new people in, you're not the right person for me. And there are a number of other people who would be happy to work with you and take your money and input their new system to do things. But ultimately, you're the overing in the situation that's going to get in the way of the development that happens. Sometimes people will come around. And you know, if when, you make, when you make mistakes a couple of times and you learn and you start to see things develop and you see people move from roles that you would never have expected them to into really strong leadership roles or strong revenue roles, then uh, you start, you agree that there's an opportunity to think differently, do differently and perform differently. So um, that's a really hard one. But it, for me, it all starts with the questions that I ask and how people respond yeah. to those questions. And um, that's where I start. 
Well, and I think this actually will take us back to the problems and the solutions conversation and how, like, my level of respect for you, which has been very impressive already, just ratcheted up even more because you having the ability to turn work away because it's not aligned is something that is very true to my core as well. If we go in, start working with an organization, and I see that they don't have any sort of an appetite, it's really a waste of time for both parties. I don't care about the revenue that we can capture from it because we are so focused on actually making an impact and positively affecting an organization. And if the leadership isn't really ready for that yet, I would rather just go somewhere else where they are ready for it so that we can actually have some sort of a mutually beneficial relationship and partnership between our team and, and their team. And so, you know, also there's a lot of companies to your point that will gladly take that revenue and try to install a system. And I think this is part of the problem with a lot of leadership development and organizational development companies is they'll just go out there, even though they know it's not going to work just to capture the revenue and they end up not being able to affect change while yes, the, that company is able to capture that revenue. The company that hired them is going to just get frustrated and think, well, see leadership development, it's a waste of time. We tried it. It didn't work. And the reality is the leadership of that company didn't take the time to truly understand, check their own ego and lean into it to adopt it and, and be willing to make sort of changes in their organization. I think one of the perfect examples of this and it's because operating systems are starting to become maybe, and it might be my own biases bias because I look around and I see operating systems everywhere, but the um, adoption of OKRs inside organizations, a lot of times people will implement OKRs inside the organization. And when you go through why the OKR implementation failed, you quickly realize that they didn't follow Doer's recommendation in his book, which means they didn't get to that page in the book or they just didn't remember that part, but that the leadership team should implement OKRs for a six month period before rolling out to the rest of the organization. Actually internalize this, understand how these things work, figure out what's working inside their organization before reading a book and saying, this worked for Google, this worked for Intel, now it's going to go work for us. So we're going to go out there and, and make it work. And that is with OKRs or EOS or Mind or you know, Mind, which is game plan. Like all of these systems, they will work when you implement them properly in the right context and you learn because each of them are grounded in some of the same kind of fundamentals, which is how do we create better alignment inside our organization associated with a single goal and objective? And how does that scaffold all the way through? And that's how you build that scale that we're talking about. And it becomes super complex on the far right side of it when you look at all of the different things. But if you can organize around strategy and you can see where those alignment pieces are and understand where your potential breakpoints are, where your dependencies are, you will be able to simplify, focus on a specific variable, inside the organization, address it there, tweak it, and then have that start to impact the way that the rest of the organization is successful. But all of these things work when you take the time to work them through. It's, uh, it's, it's crap leadership though, when you get in there and you say, okay, well, I'm going to push this out to the rest of the group and let everybody else go through and do it because this is, this is what our investors said we should do, or this is what somebody on the leadership team said we should do, or this is what somebody I was talking to on an airplane said we should do. Um, all of this stuff works. It, it, it really does. It's, it, it's at the fundamental piece. It's when you start to get shortcut driven and kind of, um, yeah, when you start to look for shortcuts and silver bullets, those that's when things don't work because you've gotten yourself into a situation where you need it to happen so fast that you forget about some of the other pieces and you don't do the, you don't do the basic blocking and tackling first that helps keep the team operating. 
Uh, again, this is hard and I've made mistakes relative to the client acquisition side of things. That's why one of the things I do now is I limit my engagements to no longer than 90 days and then operate in 90 day sprints from that point forward so that there's always a way for one of us to exit if we're not the right fit. And the story I like to tell there, which I think everybody can relate to is you drive down the road and you see your neighbor and you wave at them and everything's good. You maybe stop in their garage and have a drink with them and everything is good. You go in their backyard, have barbecue, everything is good. Your water main goes and you have to move into their house for two weeks. You realize everything is not good, <laughs> but you can't see it when you're passing by. So give yourself a little bit of grace. Give yourself some, some space to work through that stuff um, and come up with systems and processes to help control uh, for those items that matters. Man. Mike, I cannot thank you enough for everything that you just came on and shared on the show here. Just been such a phenomenal conversation. I think uh, I'm going to continue having conversations. I think this probably going to make sense for you and I to work together in some capacity in the future. So definitely looking forward to that. Awesome. In the meantime, what is the best way for people to contact you? Go to findmycatalyst.com. Single URL, findmycatalyst.com. You'll be able to see the different things that we do and the ways that we work with the ways that I work with organizations and some of the things that Jen and I are doing relative to uh, community work, uh, community building that we're doing, um, which uh, we're, we're really excited about. Findmycatalyst.com is the, is the best place. Awesome. Fantastic. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have for the show today. I will make sure we have all of Mike's contact information in the show notes down below. So please reach out to him. If you, if you're an aspiring leader or in a sales role, please reach out to him, figure out a little bit more about what they do, how you can work with them so that you can grow yourself. And y'all have a good one. <laughs>